and welcome to the Black and White Podcast, where we discuss relevant topics in our culture today and speak radical grace, raw truth, and real hope in a gray world. I'm Denise Pass, and I'm honored to be back this week with David Barton, the founder and president of Wall Builders. David, welcome back. Thanks, Denise. Good to be back with you. Thanks for having me. Oh, my pleasure. We were on such a great discussion last week, so I was like, we cannot end here. So the scripture for this week is out of Esther 4.14, the NIV translation. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. David, I am I'm just really struck by how at our last discussion, we were talking about how important it is for individuals to be active and how so often we feel overwhelmed by this notion of what can we do? How can we affect it? So thank you for just sharing some insights as to how we can play a part in, and even in elections, how very important it is that we show up and we do our part or maybe even run for some offices. You know, I have a a rabbi friend, and as an evangelical Christian leader, it's kind of strange that I have a rabbi, but I have a personal rabbi. I asked him lots and lots of questions. He has helped me grow in Bible knowledge in unusual ways. And my rabbi is Daniel Lappin. He's considered one of the 50 most influential rabbis in America. Hmm. And he was telling me at one point, he said, David, he said, you you realize that, that the language God chose to speak to people first was Hebrew. When he spoke to Adam and Eve in the garden, it was Hebrew. Hebrew is God's language. He said, every word in Hebrew is a word that came out of the mouth of God. I go, okay. He said, what's significant is there's a lot of words that we have today that you cannot say in Hebrew. And you can't say them because they never came out of the mouth of God. Wow. I said, what? He said, well, I, I, I said, what? give me an example. He said, well, here's an example. He said, you cannot say the word coincidence in Hebrew because it never crossed God's mind that something was a coincidence. You can't say, oh, I was really lucky. What do we think that, that God said, oh, man, I didn't see that coming. That's a surprise to me. No, God orders nor day. And I thought that's really profound. The fact you cannot say the word coincidence tells us something about God's care and providence over us. So I said, what other words can you not say? He said, well, you cannot say the word retirement. There's never is a time when God thinks you're not supposed to be doing something. You may change your jobs, but you're put here to be productive, whatever age you are. You can't say the word fair. Fair is irrelevant. What happened to Jesus wasn't fair. What happened to, to Joseph wasn't fair. Mm. And, and, and then he told me, he said, and you can't say the word rights. Rights is not a word you say in Hebrew. He said, what you say is responsibilities. Now, that's profound because here we are at election time, and we say, I've got a right to vote. No, you don't. You have a responsibility to vote. You don't have mm. a right to vote. When you start talking about rights, you talk about entitlements, what's due to me. Yes. You talk about responsibilities, you talk about what's due to others. And so I have a responsibility. I don't have a right to vote. I have a responsibility to vote. It's a stewardship God gave me, and I have to exercise that. Now, here's the, the actual story of what happens, because last week we were talking about individuals can make a difference, school board elections, whatever. In America... To be a voter, all you have to do by the Constitution is to be 18 years old and above. That's it. Now, what we ask is that you register to vote. That way we know that you didn't vote 10 times or 10 different people didn't vote and steal your vote. We just ask you to register. 
where we are right now is out of all the 18 year olds and above in America, only 67.1% are registered to vote. So mm -hmm. right off the bat, one third of Americans say, I don't care what happens to this country. I'm not going to do a single thing either direction. So you've got one third of Americans who refuse to be responsible for what happens past that you say, okay, there's two kinds of elections. There's presidential year elections and there's non-presidential year, like where we are now in a presidential year election since 1980, 54% of registered voters vote. Now that's 54% of 67%. So what you're talking about is when we choose our presidents, only 36% of American adults actually vote for a president. It only takes half of that to choose the president, which is 18%. One, since 1980, only one out of five Americans has chosen the president of the United States. Two out of five voted, one chose the losing candidate. So we're talking one out of five. Now, when you come to an election like this year, this is a non-presidential election, what we call an off-year election, and average is, 39% of registered voters vote, but that's 39% of 67%, which puts you at 26% of the population will vote in this election. Half of that chooses the winner. So we're looking at our governors, our U.S. congressmen, our state U.S. senators. They're being chosen by 13% of adults. That's one out of eight adults choosing our, our elected leaders this election. That's why when you say I've got a right to vote and I'm not mm -hmm. going to do anything with it, this is an election where that when you vote, every vote that's cast actually is worth more than one vote because so few people vote. You're actually having the impact of like three votes if mm -hmm. one person votes. So it really is important that we do that, that we see it not as a right. This is a responsibility. Um, I will answer to God for what I, I do with everything he's given me, and the right to participate is a right he gave us. And if we choose to sit out, that's not going to be a good explanation for him. Amen. You know, everything we have, we need to steward. And speaking of stewarding, uh, you had mentioned in the last episode briefly about a, a collection you have of early American writings and artifacts, and I think more than 120,000 originals or copies of originals from before 1812, including handwritten writings from our founding fathers. Most authors document their writings about history by relying on secondary or tertiary sources, but you actually own the primary sources, the eyewitness records and document from them. Why is this important to you? I guess the easiest way to answer that, Denise, is why it's important is what we see happen when we show those items to young people. Mm -hmm. uh, because right now there's a narrative in the nation about race and white privilege and white oppression and, and, and black victimization. And some of that definitely exists. But when you show actually the documents, there's a whole different side to history than what professors are telling right now. Uh, for example, the first slave law ever enacted in America was to allow you to own black slaves or white slaves or Indian slaves. It was not about black on black or white on black. Actually, the reason we have permanent slavery in America was a man went to court and said, I want to own this guy permanently. And the court said, yes, you can. That man was a black man who went to court to own other black men. Hmm. When you look, for example, in the South at the time of the Civil War, we have lots of free blacks who are not slaves. 
Interestingly, in states like South Carolina, 43% of free blacks owned black slaves. That's black on black. So you wow. find out that, you know, slavery is actually a sin. And sins are not confined to just one race of people. They apply to every group out there. And so uh, by the time of the Civil War, one out of every eight inhabitants of major Indian tribes were black slaves. Indians were some of the largest owners of slaves. So when kids see that, and we, we have the documents to show that, they go, wow, we never knew that. And instead of, of just putting people against each other and combating white, black, black, white, we show, look at the great relationships we have. Look at the, the first black elected to office in America, 1768. He was reelected for 49 years. He held eight different political positions. I can take you through black heroes in the American Revolution that we never hear about today. I can show you the prominent role that black people played in holding office and leading armies and leading military. We don't get any of that until we think Martin Luther King in the 1960s. So we can bring truth. And young people get this and it changes their narrative. When they see the documents related to racial tensions or when they see the documents related to American history in general, what happened in the American founding, they're, they're told the founding fathers were atheists and agnostics and deists. And we show them all the Bibles that were done by the founding fathers and all the sermons that were preached and how many founding fathers were ministers. And it just blows them away. So what we have helps establish truth. And in a generation that we're raising to not care about truth, and when we have academics who don't, who don't want to tell what the truth is, they want to tell what their viewpoint is, this really does help. Um, so for us, that's where we do so much of our writing is out of original sources. Mm-hmm. And we generally choose topics to write about that we know are in contradistinction to what the culture is saying at that time. You know, the culture is saying, here's what race relations are. We're saying, okay, but here's what they actually are. You know, here's what you're picking out. And the way I explain this to school teachers is we teach black history in America by talking about slavery in the Civil War and by talking about Martin Luther King and civil rights movement. But that's like taking a boxcar, a train, a whole, if you've seen these, these trains that are over a mile long, you know, they've got 100 boxcars in them. That's a, one train. But what we'll do is pick two boxcars out of the hundred to say this is black history. No, there's, there's hundreds of incidents. You've chosen civil rights and you've chosen slavery, but there's a whole lot more you didn't choose and look at. And that's what we try to help people see is it's not so simplistic as they think it is. There's a great untold story. And when you see the whole story, then it gives perspective and gives truth to what they're being told about the instance that they will see. So that, that's why all these documents are so interesting. But, you know, the, the, the question you ask is, is, and the answer is, it makes a difference in the faces of those kids, especially. But it's that way with everyone. We have people coming through here, groups coming through all the time, seeing this stuff. It is transformational to go back and, and see truth, actually. And that's what this is. Well, what's interesting to me, too, is, you know, over time, it's kind of like that telephone game. You know, things are relayed and it changes over time and why it is so important to go back to the original source so we don't forget. But it, it's just easier sometimes and people have their own perceptions that are carried down in agendas, political agendas that end up happening in the public school system as well. So um, this is, I think, essential. The question is how to, like you said, at the local level, you're doing your part. Um, and of course, you also write 
homeschool curriculum and and things like that. So, you know, we all can help perpetuate that. I know uh, at a homeschool co-op I ran, you know, I intentionally sought after your curriculum because I wanted to have something that I believed was truth. And so Mm -hmm. thank you for just your diligence in preserving the original intention. I really, really appreciate that. Yeah, Um, we see that as real key. There's a great passage in Song of Solomon 8, uh, chapter 8, verse 13, where the Bible says, your friends listen to your voice, so speak. It's a great admonition. Everyone today has some kind of a platform, whether yes. it be your social media stuff, whether it be you know a civic group or Sunday school class or whatever. And if we would just teach the people in that group, don't worry about teaching the whole nation. You mm. teach the five or ten around you, those five or ten, that's all Jesus did. He hung out with 12 guys who changed the entire world. And so if you will take the people you got around you and teach and train, they will each do that and it ripples out. And so one of the things we do at Wall Builders with all this, the stuff we have, we actually have a YouTube channel that's filled up with a, hundreds of short videos, one, two, three minute videos, just giving tidbits that people can learn and to take to others. You know, we had Columbus Day not long ago. And the truth about Columbus is 100% different than what they're told today. And mm-hmm. so we give little tidbits that you can share with students in school because they're going to hear about Columbus Day at school and they're going to hear about all the genocide and the sex slavery he did, except none of that's true. So that's that's why we really, we feel like we're putting out ammunition for other people to put in their guns and shoot, if you will, and and that ammunition is information. And so we, we produce lots of short things designed for people to be able to take into their groups and help their groups understand truth about different issues that we face you know, whether that's military issues, whether that's educational issues or church issues or, or you know, hero issues with, with Columbus, who is now the greatest villain in American history, as opposed to a hero that he was for 500 years. You know, all that kind of national anthem, you know, mm-hmm. does the national anthem, the fourth verse actually talk about slavery? And if it does, what does it say? And was Francis Scott Key at racist? Should we take a knee at the national anthem because it was built on racism? No, Francis Scott Key actually was... He went into court so many times to fight for the rights of blacks in court that they actually called him the black lawyer. Actually, they called him the end lawyer, you know, the, the, the N-word. And so wow. we're told he's a racist mm-hmm. who wrote the national anthem. No, he's a huge civil rights guy who went into court time after time fighting for the equal rights. So we have all this stuff out there that when all these narratives come up in the culture, we say, no, here's truth. Just tell people what the truth is and they'll respond. And when you do that, it inoculates all this, this junk that comes at us. And that's what we try to do is provide inoculation that people can use to inoculate their own communities, their own kids, their own homeschool co-ops or whatever it is. Well, you know, it makes me think of, you know, the truth sets people free. And I right. think about Pilate when he asked Jesus, what is truth? And I feel like that is what our society I don't even know if they're asking. I don't know if they really care. They're just whatever truth seems to meet their relevant need at the moment becomes truth. And, you know, God loves us too much than to let us go around believing truth that can change. You know, he has absolute truth for us. And a lot of times people feel that, oh, well, that's harsh. You know, well, what about me? I want to be this way or that way. It's out of his kindness that he defines boundaries for us that lie in pleasant places. But we just get caught up in our humanism and thinking things should be centered around man instead of God. And I think that's really where we get lost. 
you know, you discuss identity politics in your book, mm-hmm. which is such a thought-provoking term. People don't often stop to see that they have become a part of what I call the machine, where they label people and identify them into boxes within the political system that they can't, can't get out of. We become all segregated into our respective constituencies. Can you explain identity politics and how it impacts our culture? Yeah, I always start with what is God's view and then what are we facing? And God's view on race is very, very simple. Uh, we're told out of Acts 17, 26, the Bible says, and God from one man made all races of men. So what you have is one parent, and I, I speak in black churches, Hispanic churches, Asian churches, and I always say, you know what? I look different from you, but you're my 150th cousin because we've all come from one man. We're all descendants of one. And so what you find in the Bible Revelation 7, 9 talks about how all tribes, all nations, all languages, all peoples are gathered around him, praising him. What you find in the Bible is there are only two groups, those who know God and those who don't know God. Everything else is superficial. Uh, When the prophet Saul went to choose a king for Israel, he looked at all and said, it's got to be Jonah down. And, And God said, no, it's this kid David down here. And that's when God's whole Samuel said, Man looks at the outward appearance. I look at the heart. I'm looking at the inside. And so the characteristic of human nature and humanism is to group people by their appearance, by what they look at, by what, what they say, what they do. And that is when you get into what are called progressives or progressivism, that is secularism on steroids. They exclude God view on everything. And so what happens with that is instead of saying that we're all equal, that God made us all, we're all his children, we all have the same guaranteed rights. What we look like on the outside is not important, it's what we are on the inside that's important. They go just the other way. Only what's important is what you are on the outside. So there, there are actually, um, from, if you talk to anthropologists and scientists, there are only four races in the entire world. Everyone comes from those four races which came from Adam but there are 24,000 different ethnicities. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about the black race or the white race, Hispanic race, that's, that's wrong. Those are ethnicities. But what we do today in politics is we say, what color are you? Oh, now I know how to treat you. Uh, What gender are you? Oh, now I know how to treat you. How much income do you make? Now I know how we do everything superficially. And so we have to find what group you're in before we know how to deal with you. And in Washington, D.C., we have lobbyists everywhere, but there's no lobbyists for people. There's lobbyists for gay or for straight or for seniors or for youth or for millennials or for black or for Hispanic or for Native. Everybody's got to be in. We tax you according to your group. God says, everybody, pay 10%, tithe. That's it. Everybody's the same. When you do that, the rich will always pay more than the poor. Because if I make 100 million a year, I'm going to pay 10 million in tithe. If I make 10 bucks a year, I'm going to pay one dollar in tithe. So rich always pay more than the poor, but everyone's treated the same. Mm. In 1913, we changed the Constitution to where we wouldn't treat everybody the same anymore. We said, we got to know what group you're in. How much do you make? Okay, you're in this group, and we treat you differently. We do the same thing with hate crime laws. Instead of saying, hey, this behavior is a crime, we say, well, it's more of a crime if it's against gay or lesbians. It's more of a crime if it's against this group or that. No, it's behavior. So we are into looking at the outside in a very real way, and that is not God's approach, not God's view. 
all of our rights, inalienable rights come because we're simply humans. We're his kids. And every one of his mm -hmm. kids gets the same set of rights. So that's the, the secular progressive thing that they do is divide us again. That's why immigration is such a problem right now. Immigration mm -hmm. is a problem because we say we want so many from Syria. We want so many from Germany. We want so many from Kenya. And we should be saying, no, no, no. We want those whose hearts are aligned with what we want to do. Amen. Those that come from other countries, if you want to assimilate and, and, and be an American and, and, and love what we stand for and help perpetuate the freedoms we have, you're with us. We want you. But if you come here and say, no, I want to create a separate culture, separate system. I want Sharia law instead of constitutional law. That's not what we want in America. But we, we believe that having all these different groups who disagree with each other makes us healthy. No, that, that's not the way it works in the Bible. Mm. That's not the way it works in God's kingdom. And we got to get away from that thinking. We go back to equality comes from God. It doesn't come from the, from the government or anyone else. That is so beautiful. I think, you know, a lot of times we see this, uh, like you just said, you know, everyone, you know, we're all the same, you know. But if, if there is, I mean, I was just talking to my husband about this the other week. I said, they're so just the melting pot is what we're, we're known as. But it is kind of this, you know, we can be our own entity, you can be your own entity, and then we're not united. And so I really love what you said about if you are in agreement with who we are as a nation, welcome. But now, what do you think about Trump's remarks that if you don't have a border, you don't have a country? And how does that fit with the founding fathers' beliefs? Well, when you look at the Bible, first off, the Bible tells us in Acts 17 that God is the one who lays out the boundaries of the nations. So God thinks there should be nations and they should have boundaries. Otherwise, he would have said no nations. It's just one globe. That's not what he did. He mm -hmm. created nations. He gave Israel boundaries. He said, this is your property. This is your land. He laid out other nations the same way. All the nations, the Bible says God laid out their boundaries. So first off, God is in favor of boundaries. He is in favor of distinct nations. We're not all one nation. We're not all one people. We have equality. We have the same rights, but he puts people in nations. And so that's the first thing is, is what Trump said is actually what God said. Not that Trump knew he was repeating God. That's not what I'm implying. But what I'm saying is the principle he espoused. Founding fathers believe the same thing. America is a unique nation. We talked about that last week. Our, our, our longevity, our stability, everything we have is unique. We're not like other nations. And that's because we have unique ideas. And to say that we can all believe the same thing and all have the same results, is crazy. If that's true, then, then why is Venezuela the way that it is? You know, why is Germany so different from other nations? Why is it that Poland and France can't get along? Because Poland is so God-centered and France is so secular-centered, anti-God-centered. So to say that they're all going to have the same prosperities just because we're all humans, that's nonsense. Mm. America's different because of our ideas, and our ideas exist within this border. We're willing to export them elsewhere, but if you want to come live under this set of ideas, then come live under this set of ideas. Don't come with your ideas and try to change what we're doing and make us like, like some other nation. Don't make us like Russia. It's a different set of ideas. So Trump is right in that. The founding fathers were very explicit in this. They created the first immigration laws. And by the way, the founding fathers were heavily pro-immigration. Uh, most folks don't know, but seven of the 39 guys who signed the Constitution were immigrants. We were heavily reliant on immigrants. But the immigrants also believe that when you come here, you need to have a certain set of beliefs because America thinks different from all other nations. 
it was actually immigrants who said, you should not be able to vote in America until you've lived here 14 years. Because if you start voting when you get here, you'll make this country look like the country you came from. And you left your country to have something different. So you need to know how Americans think before you start voting. Otherwise, you'll destroy the country. So the Constitution actually settled on five years. You have to be here five years before you can become a citizen because you need to know how we think over here. We're different from other countries. Once you figure out how we think, now come be a part of us and vote and help us keep that mentality and help us keep those uniqueness. So the Founding Fathers did a great job of, of creating um, that, that kind of integration of other cultures in, but you had to learn our culture before you could participate actively in our culture. And they understood that there was a learning curve there. Uh, but that's not what progressives do. Progressives want open borders. They, they think we'll all, mm-hmm. look, when you do that, you're all going to go to the same level of mediocrity. We are way up here. All we can do is go down from where we are. We're not going to rise higher. Uh, so we are at the apex right now. Not that we can't do better in a lot of areas. We can. But if you're going to bring in everybody from across the world in open borders, then all of our ideas are going to start floating down to where they are rather than rising up to where we are. You have to have standards. You have to have borders to do that. That just is so profound and true. And yet I do know it flies in the face of that political correctness. <laughs> you have to, there can't be competition. Everyone has to be the same, you know, like you mentioned earlier uh, about being fair and it's so important. I mean, as I mentioned earlier about boundaries lying in pleasant places, it's not wrong to have boundaries and standards and to expect of people who want to come to this nation that they would adopt our beliefs. If you go to most nations of the world, they are focused on one central belief. So thank you for sharing that. If you could leave one last thought in our listeners' ears that is the most important takeaway, what would it be? It is to see yourself individually as an agent of change to those around you. Instead of looking at how change comes from other people, say, I'm going to be the one to change three people around me. I'm going to take on three people or five people or one person. Look at yourself. That's what I love about the story of Nehemiah and rebuilding the walls. The people who rebuilt those walls were not stonemasons. They said you had a jeweler out there. You had a man and his daughters. You had soldiers out there. Everybody did something to put some stones back in place. And, it's, you know, some did more than others. The Menotokoa built 1,500 meters. That's a lot of wall. Others just they said the priests only rebuilt their own home. Great. If you rebuild something, get something done, then that helps the overall thing. So don't look at yourself as saying, you know, I'm just an individual. I'm one of 330 million in America. There's nothing I can do. Throw that out the door. Say, you know what? I got some neighbors. I got some kids down the street. I got some others. I'm going to take them under my wing and help them understand some some life lessons that they need. Let me explain it this way. This is the problem that Christians have right now: is we've been trying to help the world become Christian for 2,000 years. Right now, 33% of the world is Christian. Do you know that if every Christian were to make a commitment that I'm going to bring someone else to be a Christian? Next year, 66% of the world would be Christian. Mm-hmm. And if everyone made a commitment that year to make one, two years from now, the entire world would be Christian. That's just because everybody reaches one person. So that's, that's the impact of reaching one. You know, we've been fighting again 2,000 years, and we're now at 33%. And that's because a lot of people don't do anything to help expand the faith. Well, in the yeah. same way, help expand American beliefs, help expand American ideals, help expand the faith. Take on one person a year. 
try to mentor them and change them and, and help them grow. And, and that will change the entire nation. Amen. Thank you for being with us today, David. We have thoroughly enjoyed the curriculum that we've used in our homeschool education that you've written. And we're just so grateful for your commitment and diligence to preserve our nation's heritage. We're going to have links um, on this episode on my website that you can go ahead and look at that we've referenced in these episodes. And also, if you'll put a comment um, on the post, you'll be entered to receive a copy of one of his books. The raw truth is, if we do nothing to help solve the problems in our nation, that is doing something. It is contributing to the decline of our nation. The radical grace is God has blessed our nation abundantly, and we still have a large Christian population. If God's people will humbly pray and act, God can use his people to turn the course of a nation. The real hope is revival begins with one. No one is insignificant. We each can do our part to help our nation heal. You've been listening to the Black and White Podcast, where we filter life through the Bible and live life in the freedom of truth. Mm-hmm.